Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, April 28th, 2015. I'm beginning to think that out there in seeker-driven land that uh, some of the seeker-driven vision-casting leaders are kind of like chomping at the bit to get to summer because some of their sermons are starting to reflect some of the themes we would normally see during the summer season. Yeah, that's right. Heresy hurricane season is drawing to a close. give you the details in a minute. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible to see and compare if what people are preaching and teaching in the name of God actually squares with God's Word. When we put it back in context, use sound biblical exegesis, rightly dividing law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, or if what's being taught by the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets and prophetesses, uh, well, if if what they're saying, well, if it's not orthodoxy, if it's something different, if it's something they're teaching for shameful gain that they ought not to teach. And um, yeah, you, you think of it this way, is, is that Christianity is the faith that is once for all delivered to the saints. And so when somebody's coming along and teaching some brand new doctrine that we've never heard before, and what I mean by that when I say we, I mean the church Catholic, small c, not Roman Catholic, the church universal, you know, you know, so you can't find it in the writings of the earliest church fathers, you can't find it in the writings of the reformers, you can't find it in any reputable Christian dogmatics text. Instead, it's a it's a new doctrine that uh, you know that only this particular pastor or preacher has ever come up with. Yeah, it's generally a bad thing. I mean, really a bad thing. That means you're being schnookered. That means you're being bamboozled. That means you're being hoodwinked and taken advantage of. And they're not ministering to you. They're not. They're not Christian ministers at that point. They are ministering to themselves at your expense, not only temporally by you know lifting out of your wallet the money that you need to pay them for their services and their products, but also potentially eternally because they're not pointing you to Christ. They're pointing you to some strange doctrine or to yourself or to them. And it's not a good thing. So we try to uh, spare you, if you would, a lot of agony, um, weeping and gnashing of teeth and, and things of that nature uh, here at Fighting for the Faith. And uh, so the way we do that is we open up our Bibles and we take a listen to snippets and things like that that are being taught by many of the most pa- popular people out there. 
And uh, we try to have a little bit of fun along the way, which is the controversial part. But <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Apparently, we're, if you're going to critique theology, you can't laugh; uh, otherwise, you invoke the wrath of certain people. Anyway, so today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. By the way, every episode of Fighting for the Faith has a theme, unless I say so. And today's episode, almost, just so close. <laughs> so I have to say, it doesn't technically have a theme, although some themes are things are themed together. And uh, you'll you'll kind of figure that out. But uh, let's talk about what we are going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to begin with a money-grubbing televangelist update, if you would. And uh, and this is what I would consider to be probably one of the most irresponsible things I have heard from a televangelist. And the televangelist is John Hagee, who of Four Blood Moons fame. Um, he's uh, jumped onto the Shemitah uh, bandwagon and literally on his um, Hagee hotline, uh, he's uh, issued a warning about a potential financial global financial crisis that's supposed to you know break during this uh, either late in the summer or early in the fall due to the Shemitah. But he doesn't know how to pronounce the word Shemitah, um, so uh, <laughs> you'll kind of get that really quick. And uh, we'll stick with the uh, money-grubbing televangelist theme, and we are going to check in with Paula White. And it's been a while since we've checked in with Paula White, but her latest episode of Paula Today has uh, her talking about it's your season of biblical increase. Did you know that it's your season of biblical increase? And it's it's kind of one of those things where I sit there and you know I see a, a message title like this from a money-grubbing televangelist. And, you know, it kind of reminds me of kind of like clothing. They say one size fits all. But see, the thing is, is that not everybody is the same size. And so, so you know, the way I kind of picture it in my mind, and maybe this is wrong of me, but when something says one size fits all, there's only one size that it can be, and that's like super rotund. And so if you're really skinny, you're going to be swimming in it. <laughs> and, of course, if you're rotund, then, you know, it'll fit perfectly. But one size fits – I guess that's the only way that you can do it unless, of course, you want to go with something stretchy. And <laughs> Just the mental pictures there are starting to hurt because, you know, uh, for those who are fit and trim, um, the, the stretchy, well, it would be form-fitting and um, may reveal too much. But then again, for the person who's rotund, you buy something stretchy, one size fits all. And, mm, yeah, um, I wouldn't want to see that in public. So, uh, yeah, so when I see a message like this, you know, the, it's your season of biblical increase. I'm thinking, this is going out on television and on the Internet. And... It's no respecter of persons, per se, and so the idea is, is that everybody is going to hear this message, and it's a one-size-fits-all message. And it's like, how can you do something like this if you're not talking about something that truly does apply to all of us? And, and what I mean by that is, is that you know, you talk about something that universally impacts all of humanity – our sinful natures. Now, our sinful natures take on all kinds of different symptoms, if you would. For some people, their sinful nature causes them to go into obsessive, you know, behaviors like gambling or what what other addictive, you know, like drugs and alcohol, or you, you talk about sexual addictions and things like that, or habitually lying or or gossiping. And so, you know, the, our sinful nature, uh, all of us have tested positive for that eternally fatal disease known as sin 
And that disease has just a plethora, a plethora of different symptoms by which you can tell that you have the disease. And so, but the thing is, is that we all have that disease in common. So even if all of us are not um, you know, liars or all of us are not adulterers or all of us are not thieves and all of us are not murderers, you know, just kind of fill in the thing. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're not a murderer, you're still a sinner. It doesn't matter if you're not an adulterer, you're still a sinner. It doesn't matter. You see what I'm saying here? We all, the root there is, regardless of how it manifests, our sin is in place. So you can talk about, in a very real way here then, the gospel applies to all of us. It's not a one-size-fits-all, but what it is, it is the one solution to the one common problem that we all have. And so, you know, when I see a message like, your season of biblical increase, it's like, really, really? So because I heard Paula White, it's supposedly going to be my season of biblical increase. Anyway, you you kind of get the idea here. So, um, yeah, one of the issues I have with the money-grubbing televangelist types. And then we'll take a break, and when we come back from the break, I am going to do something I have not done in a while. And, <laughs> hoy, it's making me nervous. And you know, and the reason why is there is one particular um, seeker-driven vision-casting leader that I have reviewed here in the past at Fighting for the Faith who just gives me the heebie-jeebies. And what I mean by that, it's that, it's that every time I listen to him, I feel the testosterone in my body being sucked out and, you know, and it's just leaving me completely dry. And it, it, it's just, it's emasculating. It, that's the only way I can describe it. And of course, I'm talking about Carrie Shook. And so it has been a while and I got to confess, I have been avoiding Carrie Shook like the plague. And <laughs> I've decided to, pardon the pun, man up and... <laughs> And do a Carrie Shook update. So we'll have a seeker-driven vision-casting leader update. And then in hour number two, what I alluded to at the opening of the program is that, uh, well, uh, it, you know, it, here we are. It is April 28th, and we are literally one month away, actually just a few days short of a month away, from the end of the current heresy hurricane season that we find ourselves in. Now, if you're not, if you're not a uh, listener of Fighting for the Faith for any length of time, you're a fairly new listener, then you're not familiar with the idea of heresy hurricane season. And h- here's the idea, is that there is a time when the, the you have the greatest potential for major heresy and false doctrine blowing through you know the visible church, and that season begins in the United States with uh, Labor Day. So kind of like the first Sunday, uh, you know, first weekend, in uh, in September, uh, all of the heretics are back at church. They're you know they've spent months out in Tahiti, flying their uh, you know their private jets to you know, tropical exotic locations. Of course, every time I travel, I have to either drive or take cheapo air. But I'm not bitter about that. Actually, I'm I'm not. But I just I find it fascinating. But anyway, so they they have spent time recharging their batteries and letting their creative false doctrinal juices flow and they hit the ground running and like you know it's like watching a horse race you know they're all in the gate and as soon as labor day hits you know you know the bell rings and they're off and and it gets really busy around here at uh, at uh, fighting for the faith in heresy hurricane season there's you know times when it, the season can be really ramped up you know like september is very busy uh you know right around easter very busy 
uh, you know, things like that. But then things start to wind down, and they start to wind down about this time, and we're starting to get close to the summer season, which means it's time for preaching on movies. Yeah, that's right. And so I've been watching, you know, my uh, two terabyte hard drive of uh, theological death and uh, watching the sermons coming in from the seeker driven guys. And some of them have like jumped the gun. Uh, it's <laughs> it's a little it's a wee bit early, but we're going to kind of note this by uh, reviewing a sermon um, about Iron Man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll give you details in Iron Man. Yeah, it's a sermon about Iron Man. And uh, so, yeah, that's what we're going to do with today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. So you kind of get the idea. So make yourself comfortable. And uh, by the way, fuzzy bunny slippers do enhance your uh, listener experience. And, of course, everybody knows it's all about the experience nowadays. So if you want to enhance it, head on over to Amazon.com. Grab yourself a pair of fuzzy bunny slippers. I prefer... Uh, you know, I've I actually I, I've got a well-worn pair of fuzzy bunny slippers now. I, several years ago, when I debated Doug Paget, a listener gave me a really nice pair of uh, fuzzy bunny slippers, and uh, I've been wearing them for years. And oh, the poor little things—they're—they're they're looking like they're—they're they're looking kind of shabby. But if you know, I don't even think they make those anymore. But uh, th- they do make the uh, Monty Python—you know, the 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 vicious bunny from uh, Monty Python's The Holy Grail—they do make uh, fuzzy bunny slippers with that. Anyway, so with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. I recommend you make yourself comfortable, and here we go. I've got 90,000 pounds in my pajamas. I've got 40,000 French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira. Now the Deutsche Bank's getting dearer, and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money you can make a splash. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. Money, money, money. There's nothing like a newly minted pound. Money, money, money. Everyone must anger for the butchness of a banker. It's accountancy that makes the world go round, round, round. You can keep your Marxist ways, but it's only just a phase. For it's money, money, money makes the world go round. Money, 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 money. So there we go. That's the uh, Money Python money song. And what we're going to be listening to is uh, a recent uh, how do you put, how do you put this communique sent out by John Hagee to his faithful via the Hagee hotline, <laughs> and uh, he is warning us of the impending danger and doom of a global financial meltdown due to the four blood moons and the Shemitah. But keep in mind, uh, apparently John Hagee down there in. Uh, Austin, Texas is not really familiar with how to pronounce Hebrew words, and so um, <clears throat> he does a butchering job on the word Shemitah itself. But uh, here's John Hagee to it, you basically issue his warning to his faithful about the impending financial global economic crisis that's going to uh, come as a result of, you know, the four blood moons and the Shemitah. Here we go. think the four blood moons is a messenger of a coming storm? Absolutely. History repeats itself. And also in this September, the Shemaita year year is ending. Oh no, the Shemaita! You know, when you say it like that, it sounds like something that Terminex can get rid of. Yeah, you know, hey uh, uh, Terminex. Yeah, listen, I've got some Shemaitas in my uh, in my house, and I've had a really difficult time getting rid of them. Could you come on down here and spray for some Shemaitas, please? 
Something on September the 11th, 2001, which was a mighty year, was the... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think he was slurring that. Not because of any... Alcohol or anything. It was a Shmita year. Yeah, it's it's Shmita. Twin Towers of New York being attacked by terrorists. The second Shemita year, 2007, the stock market crashed 777 points. 2015 is a Shemita year. September the 28th is the fourth blood moon. No, it's the fourth blood moon. Yeah, by the way, um, I hate to kind of beat this horse, but there's a lot of uh, Christians out there who, you know, are all up in a tiz because of the uh, supposed, you know, Shemitah year. (sighs) Yeah, Shemitah. But uh, so here's the issue, and that is this, is that the Shemitah year is a Sabbath year. Yeah, if you look in the Mosaic Covenant, Mosaic Covenant, we've got Sabbaths. We've got every week there's a Sabbath. That's a Sabbath rest on Saturday. Every seven years, there's a Sabbath year. That's what the Shemitah is. And then after so many of those, you have a Jubilee. And uh, see, the thing is, is that there is no nation alive today that uh, is required to keep the Shemitah year. Um, and the reason being is real simple. Uh, there is no there is no country, including modern-day Israel, who is under the Mosaic Covenant. The, the Mosaic Covenant has been fulfilled. Christ fulfilled it. And uh, we're now under the New Covenant, and the Mosaic Covenant served its purpose. It served its function. Now that the Messiah has appeared, the seed of Abraham, yeah, it's it's kaput. So uh, the the idea here is, um, yeah, read read Galatians, you know, a three and four in particular, if you're a little bit confused about this idea, or maybe even Second Corinthians five or Hebrews uh, eight. But uh, the idea here is um, we're so. How how would the United States, you know, obey the Shemitah in order to prevent a financial collapse? Because if you're going to obey the Shemitah, then uh, you you have to release everybody of all their debts. Um, you know, poor Visa and Mastercard. I mean, they'd go out of business if they had to release everybody's debts. And then, of course, every farm in every state would have to, you know, basically be unplowed and unplanted. Uh, during the Shemitah year. Um, so, yeah, uh, uh, the the idea that God is somehow punishing the United States and they're going to wreck our financial financial institution, institutions because of the Shemitah is, well, I don't know what kind of God that is exactly, to be honest with you, but that's actually not even the God of the Bible. Shemitah year. I believe in the fall of this year, America and the world will face another economic crisis, perhaps as a result of war in the Middle East or an economic crash. But there are very sophisticated people on Wall Street saying, we are facing a 50% correction in the stock market in the near future. Get ready. Americans should get prepared. Yeah, so there you go. We we need to get prepared. He's issued a warning here. It's the Shemitah and the Four Blood Moons convergence thingy. And, uh, yeah, we're, we're doomed. And you know what I think about this? I think that's just utterly irresponsible. And the reason why I think is utterly irresponsible is because not only is it a twisting of God's word, but this is the kind of uh, teaching that can literally cause a panic. I mean, uh, somebody like John Hagee is listened to by, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. And so, you know, you got hundreds of thousands of people who call themselves Christians who are literally financially, you know, 
sitting on pins and needles. And, uh, you know, they're probably going to end up <laughs> taking their money out of the stock market, um, you know, at the last second due to, uh, you know, to what uh, these guys are proclaiming here. And uh, that's the kind of thing. It's like you remember in the old days uh, before they had the FDIC and, you know, during the you know, years leading up to the Great Depression and stuff like that, they used to have runs on banks. You just think about it this way. You know, what kind of an impact is it going to have in, on, on the economy if we had hundreds of thousands of Christians panicking because of the Shemitah and the warning that John Hagee has issued and, you know, and Jonathan Kahn and, and uh, you know, you think of Jim Baker and others. And, uh, you know, what kind of impact is that going to have when, you know, they, they pull their money out of the stock market and it could cause a crash. You know, just thinking about that. Anyway, moving along, we're still under the uh, general umbrella of money-grubbing televangelists. And here is uh, Paula Whitener, one-size-fits-all uh, teaching. Apparently, it's your season of biblical increase. And he- here's uh, Paula White to explain the details. To Paula today. today is probably one of the most important shows for you, for your purpose, for the call of God in your life. Why- oh, wow. It's This is one of the most... You know, I say I'm reading and watching this and just going, wow. This is one of the most, you know, one, most important shows she's ever done. And here I, I'm watching it. Oh, I better pay attention. This is really important. Hi. I'm going to deal with the subject of stewardship. What is biblical stewardship? Oh, yeah. Stewardship. That means sending your money to Paula White. That's stewardship, right? Over 2,500 times in the New Testament, Jesus talks about money, finances, stewardship, outside of the love of God. It's one of the most talked about subjects that he brings to our attention. If it's important to God, it has to be important to us. So what do I mean? Let's just go right from the get-go and deal with this. Finances is a big part of your life. Yeah, it is. It's a big part of your purpose. It is. There's nothing more frustrating than to have a dream, a desire, a vision, and not the resources to carry out what God has mandated you to do. Yeah, you know, because it's weird, Paula, because I feel like God has mandated me to warn the church about uh, false teachers like you. And, you know, it's really difficult because, um, you know, here I have this mandate. And if if I had, you know, the millions of dollars that the televangelists have, I mean, just imagine what I could do to, you know, to warn the church about people like you. But see, I don't. And so... Yeah, I, I just don't feel like I'm resourced well enough for my purpose. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think we're doing just fine. Thank you. There's a spiritual side to money. Now, stewardship mm-hmm. is more than just money. Stewardship in, includes your time, yeah. your talent, yeah. your life, mm-hmm. your finances, yeah. um, your gifting. Yeah, your, your giftings and your finances. Yeah, you keep mentioning finances. Why do I feel like you're trying to take money away from me? Every aspect of your life. Psalm chapter 115 verse 14 says, The Lord shall increase you the more and the more, you and your children. Yeah. You say, so what is stewardship? Stewardship is the practice and systematic proportionate giving of time, abilities. Yeah, see, there it is. Stewardship is giving. Yeah, and she kept saying finances. I feel like this is a message designed to make me want to send money to Paula White. No wonder it's a one-size-fits-all. And material possessions based on the conviction that these are trusts from God to be used for His service and to benefit the kingdom. Mm -hmm. These are the four quadrants for biblical prosperity. Number one, your finances should be able to advance the kingdom of God. That you should be a blessing. Number two, you should be able to provide for your family. 
for yourself. Number three, you should enjoy a portion that your labor has fruit to it. And part of that is for you to enjoy. And number four, you're to leave an inheritance to your children's children. If you are sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yeah, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired about false teachers like you, Paula. Yeah. And you say, Pastor Paula, it's just not. No, no, no. I, I would never say the words Pastor Paula in a sentence and actually mean like you're a pastor because, you know, see, it's weird because God's word says that women can't be weird. Not happening. I'm struggling all the time. I live in a lack. I'm, I have this big dream to start a business, but I don't have the people. I don't have the finances. I don't have the the environment, the situation that I need. That's about to shift for you in the name of Jesus. Stewardship deals with how you manage and maximize what you have. Uh-huh. It's not asking you what do you have. Stewardship goes into the principles of increase because it says what do you do with what you have. So before I get into how do you increase, let's get something in your hand. Let's establish through the word of God, the principles of prosperity. Mm, We're going to establish the principles of prosperity. And those would be what exactly? Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 11. And the Lord shall make thee plenteous in goods and the fruit of thy body and the fruit of thy cattle. Yeah. Deuteronomy 28, verse 11. Um, Who do you think is talking to whom? Yeah, see, that would be the Lord, Yahweh. And he's speaking to the children of Israel. And Deuteronomy, uh, you know, Deutero second uh, law. Um, Deuteronomy is about the de- defined details of the Mosaic Covenant. So Deuteronomy 28 is dealing with the Mosaic Covenant here and the blessings and curses uh, associated with obedience and or disobedience to the Mosaic Covenant. So you going there to the uh, blessings and curses portion of the Mosaic Covenant to somehow say that there's principles of prosperity here means that you're not making a proper distinction between Old Covenant and New Covenant. Um, in other words, you're twisting God's word. Fruit of thy ground in the land which the Lord thy God swore to thy fathers. If God was against you being prosperous, why would he make you prosperous? God would not speak to his children and say... I will make you plenteous in goods if he was against it. So the first thing we have to do is come against every mentality of poverty. Uh, Yes. Again, you're not making the distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant. And as a result of it, you're not teaching the truth. So you're sitting here and saying, we got to come against, you know, the spirit of poverty and think mentalities of poverty and lack and stuff like that. Yeah, that's that's a weird um, application that you're finding vis-a-vis this uh, twisting of God's word that you're engaging in. Every spirit of poverty. It is a spirit that I take authority over in your life right now. Yeah, where does the Bible say that poverty is a spirit that you take authority over? It doesn't say that in Deuteronomy. According to the word of God and the blood covenant of Jesus Christ, that he became poor, that you might become rich. Yeah, Second Corinthians eight nine out of context the lord will grant you abundant prosperity is what the niv says in deuteronomy 28 11 to prosper means to have continued success to thrive to grow to be flourishing to have wealth to have good fortune there's over 90 different times the scripture deals with prosperity. So I want you to break off every spirit, every mentality of scarcity, mm. because spiritually you're either functioning from abundance or scarcity. Mm, yeah, I'm either functioning from abundance or scarcity. Yeah, I, I don't know what any of that means. It's a mindset. 
Yeah, no, actually, it's <laughs> something actually kind of tangible that you can measure with, you know, just by looking at numbers in your bank account. It's a spirit. Yeah, and there is no place that says this is a spirit. I want you to begin to embrace what God says, that he has good things for you, that daily he loads you up with benefits. Yeah, again, um, you're reading the fine print of the blessings and curses of the Mosaic Covenant, which has been fulfilled by Christ. According to Psalm chapter 68, verse 19. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 25. A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will be refreshed himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, uh, Paula, you're kind of all over the map now. And th- that's kind of the standard template when you look at what the money-grubbing televangelists do. And it's duplicitous down to its core. And what I mean by that is they, well, they'll sit there and say, oh, yeah, you know, you know, the Bible says, you know, I will bless you. But see, they're they're taking it out of context and they usually are taking stuff where God has promised Israel particular things under the Mosaic Covenant, if they obey his law. Keep in mind, the Mosaic Covenant is not a covenant of of faith. It is a covenant of works. And uh, the, did Israel keep it? Yeah, no. All right, you kind of get the idea. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My mail address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, an extended Carrie Shook update. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Bank account, it's bigger than yours, I'll bet. 
twist God's word. He takes your talents and your private jest. Have you seen his bank account? It's bigger than yours, I'll bet. He's earning and he's okay. He's keeping all night and he's all day. Twist God's word, I write bad books that will land you all in hell. I'll never say I'm sorry, cause I'll be there as well. He twists God's word, he writes bad books that will land us all in hell. Ah! Oh, Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that there's nothing to the whole Shemitah thing and uh, may cause you to think twice, three times before sending money to a televangelist. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support, because we truly cannot do what we're doing here without it. Moving along. Time for a Carrie Shook update. Let's go, girls.
Yeah, I think you get the point. Okay, so yeah, that's our Carrie Shook update music. Man, I feel like a woman. And every single time we do a Carrie Shook update, I just get literally heebie-jeebied out. So what we're going to be listening to is a sermon, uh, part of sermon number two from Carrie Shook's, uh, sorry, sermon number one, my mistake here, sermon number one from the Miracle Map sermon series that Carrie Shook is currently preaching through out there at the uh, Woodlands Church in Woodlands, Texas. And uh, uh, so um, the uh, sermon begins with Carrie Shook in a rainstorm with an umbrella over his head. And uh, you got to understand this. It's he's not outside in a rainstorm. It's not like they filmed on location. No, they uh, they, they made it so that the stage there at the Woodlands Church um, that they were able to create a rain shower inside of the church. And so that's where we'll begin and we'll kind of work it out from there. Here's uh, Miracle Map Part 1, Tracking a Miracle in the Storm. Here we go. Have you ever been caught in a rainstorm totally unprepared? Uh, Maybe you're at a ball game or you're playing golf or you're at a picnic and you check the weather reports a couple of days before and it said it'd be partly cloudy with almost no chance of rain. But there you are getting drenched, experiencing 100% chance of rain. Well, in life... Now, how much money do you think it costs to for them to you know dress the stage there at the Woodlands Church and make it so that they can bring a rainstorm inside the church? We experience storms that come up suddenly and unexpectedly. I mean, everything's going great. It's sunny and smooth sailing, and then boom, from out of the blue, a storm hits. Well, unfortunately, there's no radar and there's no weather map to track the storms of life. No, there isn't. Oh, how sad is that? Yeah. Too bad we just don't have a life storm forecasting method. Oh, wow, I'm, I'm sure Christianity has a solution, right? Storms hit us unexpectedly. But God has given us a miracle map that can guide us to a personal miracle in the middle of the storm. Oh, that was a painful sentence to listen to. Wow. God's given us a miracle map. Oh, oh. yeah. <laughs> Can you tell that literally, no joke. I mean, out of all of the people I review here at Fighting for the Faith, Carrie Shook is the one, and, and I mean this singularly, that I I have the most difficult time with. I it, You know, I can hear crazy loony people talking about getting drunk on the Holy Ghost. And yeah, it bothers me, but it doesn't bother me like this. I'm, you know, maybe I need to go with therapy or something, you know, just, you know, do some couch time with a therapist. And so, you know, say, listen, you know, listen, I can, I can, I got like a cast iron stomach when it comes to all kinds of heresy, but you get me listening to a Carrie Shook sermon and I want to crawl out of my skin. So while we're starting a new series today, I'm calling Miracle Map. And now he's walking out of the rainstorm, which I'm sure cost a lot of money to create inside the church. Just a little wet. We're going to be studying the miracles of Jesus because Jesus never performed a miracle without a purpose behind it. Mm-hmm. Is it possible that some of the miracles that Jesus performed 
that the purpose behind them was to perform the miracle. You know, just saying. Um, <laughs> just You know, I think about, you know, somebody who was healed of a disease. I mean, Scripture just says he healed sick people. And, you know, do you think that maybe the reason he performed that miracle was to, you know, heal the sick person? I'm just throwing it out there. All the miracles in the New Testament Christ performed, he always performed those miracles to teach his disciples a lesson. Uh, So what was the lesson that Jesus' countless miracles that just kind of are thrown into the blanket of he healed the sick? Um, What was each of the timeless messages that Jesus was trying to convey to the disciples with with those miracles, you know? Teach us something. That there's a miracle map embedded in every miracle that will guide you to your personal miracle, the miracle that you need. And uh, uh, uh. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Maybe breathing techniques will help here. In- inhale. Exhale. Count to ten. Okay, backwards. Ten, nine, eight, seven. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Pulling myself together here. Okay, this, the, the Bible is not a miracle map. I mean, so, so that you can find your personal miracle. What is this man saying? Today we're going to kick off the series by talking about a miracle that Christ performed in the storm. And this storm story is mentioned three times in the Gospels. It's almost as if God is saying, I really want you to get this principle. That in life... God, God wants you to get a principle because a particular miracle is mentioned in three of the Gospels. Well, you know, the feeding of the 5,000 is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. Storms are inevitable. Uh-huh. Storms come into every life. They come in all different shapes and sizes, and they come unexpectedly. But there is a miracle map that can guide you to the miracle in the middle of the storm. Uh, okay, he said that three times now, and the Bible is not a miracle map to guide you f- to your miracle. Why aren't the people there at the Fellowship of the Woodlands walking out on this man? I want you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. We're going to look at the Gospel of Mark's account of this miracle in the storm. We're going to also skip around to some of the other Gospel accounts of this miracle. But I want you to stand in honor of God's word, Woodlands Church. And I want to welcome everyone worshiping with us at our satellite campuses, everyone worshiping with us through our online and broadcast ministry around the world, and everyone worshiping with us here in the Woodlands. And we stand for God's word. It's just a small symbol that we know God's word is the only thing that can change a life. I can tell you some funny stories to make you laugh. I can tell you some stories that will make you cry. But only God's word can change your life. And so our church is built on God's word. It's the only foundation solid enough to build a great church. It's the only foundation solid. Yeah, see, the thing is, is that God's word is solid in the ways you're describing it. The problem is, is that you're taking that solid thing that is the word of God and you're mixing it with some strange things. And as a result of it, you're weakening it. See, the Bible's not a miracle map so that you can find your personal miracle if you can just discover the principle, you know, or whatever. Ay, ay, ay. Enough to build a great marriage, a great family, a great life. And so it's just a symbol to say that we turn to God's Word. So wherever you are, we're all part of one church, and just follow along with me. Beginning with verse 35. That day when evening came, 
he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with them, and a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. And Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. And the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and he said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the waves died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, I'm going to point out that the punchline to that story, you know, is the sentence, you know, they were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? And even the wind and the waves obey him. See, this is early on in the Gospel of Mark, and the disciples have just been called as disciples, and they're being discipled by Jesus, and part of the discipling process is for them to come to grips with who Jesus is. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, by the way, Mark makes no, he pulls no bones about who Jesus is. First sentence of the Gospel of Mark is this, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So, right off the bat, Mark makes it very clear, Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. There it is. He just hangs it out there. But see, as the story unfolds, keep in mind, the disciples at this part in the story Mm, they are still not exactly sure who Jesus is. I mean, for all intents and purposes, I mean, he looks like a normal human being, so he's got to be that, right? But so now they're confronted with Jesus's miracles, and they are beginning to get the hint that, okay, Jesus is more than just a dude. And so the punchline in this story is, who is this? that even the wind and the waves or the sea obey him. Right. See, that's that's kind of the the issue. Who is this guy? Well, the answer is he's none other than God in human flesh, but that's still coming. They're still coming to grips with that. So this is all designed uh, to point you to who really Jesus is by giving you the eyewitness accounts of the miracles that he performed, of the teachings he taught, so that you too can believe that he's the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's what's going on here. And so let's see what Kerry Shook does. Anyone want to um, bet that he's going to end up allegorizing the storm and making it about the so-called storms in your life? How much do you want to bet? Here we go. Dear God, I thank you that you have embedded in every miracle that you performed, a miracle map for us to guide us. You, you actually prayed that to God, despite the fact that the Bible is not a miracle map for us? This is the miracle we need, and I pray that you would do that in the next few moments. I thank you for all the miracles that you've been doing this weekend at Woodlands Church, all the life change. And I, again, thank you that you're going to work miracles in minds and hearts and bodies and relationships. And, Lord, I pray that you would work miracles in marriages and families. Work miracles today as only you can and guide us through your miracle map to the miracle that we need the most. And I thank you that you're here right now. And everyone within the sound of my voice, you're right there to meet them at their point of need, to give them the miracle they need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. 
Jesus told his disciples to get into the boat and we're going to go across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But halfway across the lake, this huge storm comes up and it surprises them. It catches them totally unaware that there was going to be a storm that day. And the rain is just blowing sideways. It's a terrible storm, very violent. The waves are breaking over the boat, 10, 15-foot waves crashing over the boat. Their boat is filling up. And the disciples, who are expert fishermen, who've seen all kinds of storms on the Sea of Galilee, know this one is different. And they panic because they know this is a killer storm. This is the kind that takes fishermen under. So they go wake up Jesus, who is sleeping in the stern of the boat. And they say, Jesus, don't you even care? We're about to drown. And they're in a panic. And Jesus says, whoa, wait a minute, guys, calm down. Do you really think God's going to let this boat sink while I'm in it? I don't think so. So let's just calm down here. Yeah, that, that's not what Jesus said. He didn't tell the disciples to calm down. He told the sea to calm down. You just read this text. Why, why are you doing this? He stands up and he tells the wind and the waves, quiet, be still. And within seconds, the Sea of Galilee is like glass. Do you think the disciples' fear dissipated? No. Their fear was just redirected. They looked at Jesus and said, who is this? Right, because that's kind of the punchline. Who is this guy? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Right. And they experienced a miracle. They learned an important lesson. And what is the lesson? That there is a miracle in the storm. No, 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 no. That is not what they learned. Oh, oh. Jesus performed this miracle to give his disciples and us a storm warning. No, he did not. The, the, Jesus performed this particular miracle to demonstrate his deity. Uh-huh. To help us see that we will have storms in life. And, and I would say that so many of you are right now in the middle of a storm. Yeah, yeah, so basically, just think of it this way. You know, this particular storm story from the Gospel of Mark, it's a parable. Yeah, it doesn't matter if it really happened or not. No, what really matters is that you learn from this parable that's, you know, that really this parable is actually about you. And so whatever happens in your life, I mean, those are quote-unquote storms. That's what we call them. Uh, from, you know, oh, I got the storm raging in my life. And it's, you know, it's it's a metaphor, if you would. Um, and, you know, it's a way of describing it. But see, the thing is, is technically it's really not a storm. Um, you know, it's it's a difficult circumstance or whatever. We call them storms. So apparently, you know, the, the Mark 4 is a parable. And it's pointing to the reality. And the reality is the difficulties in your life that we call storms. We continue. And the dark clouds are swirling around you. You can't even see what God is up to right now. And you came in today in the middle of a storm. You're either in the middle of a storm right now or you're just coming out of a storm or you're just moving into a storm because storms are an inevitable part of life. But Jesus gives us a storm warning in this miracle. And he says, yes, there will be problems, difficulties, and storms. But you can find me, the miracle, in the middle of the storm. That's not what Jesus is saying at all, because, again, the punchline of the story, which is a historical narrative, this is a story about Jesus. It's not a parable about you. In the punchline, again, they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea 
obey him. Right. He's God in human flesh. That's kind of the big thing in this historical narrative. And I can use the storm to make a huge difference in your life, to take you to where you need to be. <sighs> but I really need to learn his miracle map that's embedded in this miracle. There is a miracle map embedded in this miracle. Really? Guide me to see the arrows that guide me to the miracle because you can experience a terrible storm in your life and never find the miracle. You know, they say you either get bitter or better in the storms, and the difference is one letter, I. And so I get to choose whether or not I follow God's miracle map. The first sign on the miracle map says, remember that God sometimes charts a course into the storm. In Matthew 8, 24, it says, without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake. So it looked like the storm came up suddenly and unexpectedly. And in life, it seems like storms always come up suddenly and without warning. But look what Mark 4, 35 says. As evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So before they got in the boat and went into the storm, Jesus, who is God and knows everything, knew that he was directing their boat right into a storm. See, many times when we're in the storm of life, we think God is mad at us, that he's ticked at us. He's trying to get back at us. But most of the time, it's not that we're going the wrong direction. It's that God has directed us right into the middle of the storm. And that shows me storms seem unpredictable, but instead are purposeful. Uh-huh. Yeah, and the purpose of this storm was so the disciples would understand that Jesus is God, or at least begin to get a hint at it, you know? Jesus doesn't cause the storms in our lives. He's a good God. He doesn't cause evil to happen. But we have to admit there are times when he allows the storm into our lives, when he allows the pain, when he allows the evil, when he allows the problem into our lives. But he never wastes a storm. God never wastes a hurt. God never wastes a problem. He never wastes a teardrop. There is a purpose behind every problem in your life. And many times it's that very problem that is the possibility for God to work a miracle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would point you back to Phil Johnson's um, great lecture a sermon from last week where he talked about, you know, what is the proper definition of a miracle? Uh, notice here, we've, you know, what may be God acting providentially, he's describing as a miracle. We, so we've got a lot of problems here with this. Again, he's turning Mark 4 into a parable, and it's about you rather than a historical account about Jesus. Many times it's the very barrier that becomes the blessing that takes us to our destiny. I also can see one of the biggest purposes in the storm. Every storm has a purpose. And one of the biggest purposes in a storm is storms move us out of our comfort zone and into a miracle zone. Jesus said, get into the boat. Let's go to storms, move us out of our comfort zone and into a miracle zone. Really? Other side. Now notice he didn't give the disciples a choice. Jesus, who is God and knows everything, could have said, oh, okay, guys. Yeah, that's the second time you pointed out that Jesus is God and that he knows everything. But at this time, at this point in the disciples' encounter with Jesus, they don't really get that yet. They're starting to get it. And see, that's the point. Choice here. Um, we can 
sail out across the Sea of Galilee to go to the other side, but we're going to face a terrible storm. And it's going to be the most violent storm you've ever experienced. And you're going to be so scared, you're going to wet your pants and you're going to cry like a little baby. Or you can stay here on the side. You can just enjoy the comfort of the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Yeah, so apparently now you're being chastised for not getting into the metaphorical boat to go to the metaphorical other side so that you can find yourself in the middle of a storm and thus by therefore putting yourself into the miracle zone. This is not biblical exegesis. This is nonsense. Stand on the shore and not be rocked by the wind and the waves and not go into a storm. He didn't give them a choice because, of course, they would have chosen to stay. And God doesn't give us a choice. Many times he directs us into the storm. It comes unexpectedly into our lives, but he knew it all along. And it's part of his plan because it's only in the storms that we grow. It's only in the challenges only in the problems where we turn to him and experience the miracle. If I never had a problem in my life, if everything in my life was smooth sailing and always perfect, my circumstances were always perfect, I would never pray. Without problems, you'd never get on your knees. Without problems, you'd never pray. And you would miss... Now, although there's something true about what he's saying, that, uh, you know, God's strength is perfected in our weakness. I forget how the the passage goes. I mean, there is a sense in which we are allowed to suffer. We are allowed to be put through difficult circumstances, and God is using them to sanctify us. There's there's an aspect of truth there, but this passage isn't actually teaching that. This passage is teaching us that Jesus is God. Yeah, I think you've kind of got the point. And uh, if I continue on, you know, it, reviewing Carrie Shook's uh, work here, I'm liable to spontaneously combust. You know, such are the dangers of me actually reviewing a Carrie Shook anything. All right. Um, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My mail address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. A sermon about Iron Man. Yeah, you, you heard that right. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. We're going to take a look at the ecclesiastical. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some. take a look at the ecclesiastical model employed by much of American evangelicalism today, especially as put forward by the seeker-driven movement. Chris Rosebro talking about his presentation at this summer's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. We're going to take a look at where this idea of a vision-casting leader comes from, what its main tenets are, and we're going to compare that so-called ecclesiastical office to the biblical office of pastor. 
to see if the two are actually synonymous and interchangeable or if this concept of a vision-casting leader actually turns a pastor into a false prophet. You can meet and hear Chris Rosebro making the case against vision-casting leaders in the church June 19th and 20th at the Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference in Collinsville, Illinois. For more information, visit issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. The Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, Sermon Review Time. You know, I think this is the first time we've technically reviewed a sermon from this church. I'll give you details in a second. I think we found out about them via the uh, Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. Somebody had submitted their Easter sermon for our consideration. They didn't make the cut, but I ended up adding them to the two-terabyte hard drive of death, destruction, and heresy. But anyway... Let's do this right. Hey, ho! We've got the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Momentum Church, Garfield Heights, Ohio. Curtis Teal presiding. The name of the sermon we will be in listening to is entitled The Superhero Parables Iron Man. (laughs) Let me read to you the description of this sermon. Parable equals a story with a spiritual point. Jesus constantly used parables and familiar images to teach others in plain English about having a relationship with God. We try to do that too. Uh, For example, every couple of years, we break out some comic books and use their stories as parables to teach us about loving God and loving people. It makes you wonder what's wrong with the Bible for that. (laughs) What are the original stories of these heroes? How do they acquire their powers? What is their duty to mankind now that they have these powers? And most importantly, what can we learn about God and the Bible from these fun stories? Inside of these parables are deep spiritual truths and lessons that will challenge us as we seek a deeper relationship with God. As for the real geeks, yes, we've given equal time to both Marvel and DC. No joke. So there you go. So let me back off on the music. And without any further ado, here's Curtis Teal in his sermon entitled The Superhero Parables, Iron Man. Here we go. I'm the campus minister for our Twinsburg, Macedonia campus that we launched back in September. And I got to tell you, man, I have looked forward to getting to be here with you guys uh, today all week. This is the first time I've been getting to uh, hang out with the the Garfield Heights location. It's sweet in here. Yeah. Man, I'm glad you guys are are here hanging out with us this morning. Go ahead and grab your smartphones or your Bibles. Uh, Grab the Bibles from the uh, end of the rows under the chairs and uh, pass them down. If you don't have a Bible at home that you can call your own uh, or one that you feel like you can read and understand, in all seriousness, take a pen, put your name in the front cover, and take this one home and make it yours. Uh, It's just our our gift to you. We're glad uh, uh, for you being here hanging out with us today. Now, Uh, I don't know if you were able to surmise this from the song they just covered, but today we're continuing on in our Superhero Parables uh, sermon series talking about Iron Man. 
All right, uh, now you can go ahead and take your Bibles and open up to page 44. It'll be uh, Genesis chapter 50, and we're going to get there eventually, but I want to unpack a little bit about Iron Man uh, first. So, so apparently we're going to, this Iron Man has something to do with a biblical patriarch in Genesis chapter 50. Really? Okay. Uh, Iron Man was not one of my favorite superheroes growing up. By a round of applause, do we have anybody in here, favorite superhero, hands down, no question to ask, Iron Man? Okay, all right, there. See, now here's the thing with, with Iron Man is, is, is there's not a whole lot of people that like oh, head over heels love him. Now, in the original comic book story where, you know, uh, we, we get the character Iron Man, uh, his persona well, is Iron Man, but it is... is his, you know, everyday character is Tony Stark. It's a man named Tony Stark. Now he is a, Tony Stark is a billionaire entrepreneur playboy uh, who was as at home in a laboratory as he was in some uh, upscale social scene. Uh, And people in the comic books as well as as the movies and it's, you know, kind of, you know, ended up portraying itself in real life, uh, usually love and hate Iron Man at the same time, especially in, in the comic books. They had designed his character that the people that Tony Stark and Iron Man interacted with both love and hate Tony Stark. They love Tony Stark because of his entrepreneurship. Uh, that was a word I had to practice like five times before I said it here this morning. Uh, his, because of his entrepreneurship, he was able to develop weapons. Now, Tony Stark, as a young kid at 15 years old, attended MIT... And he studied physics and electrical engineering. Uh, he eventually graduated with a master's. Just a reminder, Tony Stark is not actually a real person. Just saying, you know. Um. Degree in that. And what he would do is he would take those skills, that, that you know, brain that he had, and he would apply it to physics to be able to uh, uh, build weapons for the military. Now, in the original comic book story, Tony Stark was fighting against communism uh, in, during, like, during the Cold War. Now, in the original story is set up in Vietnam. And so he's a billionaire, entrepreneur, playboy, and people loved him because he was so good at developing weapons that would just, I mean, just annihilate their enemies. He was extremely good at what he did. Now, people hated him because he is extremely arrogant about everything that he does, you know. I mean, to put it the way Outcast would, he doesn't think his crap stinks, you know. I mean, he's he's a womanizer, uh, and he could he could do no wrong. And, and so the attitude that Stanley, who's like the you know the original writer for Marvel Comics, uh, the the attitude was given to him on purpose. This is what Stanley uh, had to say about the character. Uh, that we know as Iron Man. Stanley said this in an interview. He said, I think I gave myself a dare. It was the height of the Cold War. The readers, the the young readers, if there was one thing that they hated, it was war. It was the military. So I, I got a hero who represented that to the hundredth degree. He was a weapons manufacturer. He He was providing weapons for the army. He was rich. He was an industrialist. And I thought it would be fun to take that kind of character, the kind of character that nobody would like, none of the readers, and shove him down their throats and make them like him. Oh, well, you know, thanks, thanks, Stan Lee. And he became very popular. That's what Stan Lee says about him. Now, 
The story of Iron Man originally shows up in the comic book Tales of Suspense, issue number 39. Now, here's where the character comes from. The character is Tony Stark, and he's helping the United States military develop a weapon out of his transistors. Now, what Tony Stark had developed, he had developed these things called transistors, and he could attach them to any weapon or to any tool, and it would... It would uh, power the weapon it would add extra power to the weapon a thousand times over is what it is what it would say so in the original issue tony stark demonstrates this to the military leaders by taking a magnet out of his pocket and attaching it to one of his transistors and it pulls off an armory door off of a safe and he uses that to show to the military, you know. Yeah, do you, do you feel yourself growing closer to Jesus and, you know, and just getting ready to multiply, you know, the fruit of the Spirit in your life after hearing the backstory of Tony Stark from the original comic books? You know, the, the generals, hey, you guys need to buy these things because we can attach them to weapons, we can attach them to any tools, and it will add power to it a thousand times over. So, of course, they, they buy in, they, they buy his transistors, and they're going to use them uh, to help fight over against an enemy named Wang Chu. Now, the military did not want Tony Stark to travel with them over to where they were using the transistors because it was, it was dangerous. They didn't, you know, Tony Stark was too valuable of an asset. If they killed him, then, you know, who's going to make these transist- transistors? If they captured him, they would use him to you know, make the weapons, you know, and then they'd have to fight against an enemy who now has, you know, Tony Stark working for them. But against the military's advice, because Tony Stark is, you know, as arrogant, uh, you know, as he thinks he is, I guess, he, he goes over to fight with the communists to, 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 or to fight, you know, with the U.S. military against the communists. And the reason he goes over there is because he wants to make sure the transistors work appropriately. And if they don't work, he'll fix them there on the spot. So he shows up, attaches them to the, the weapons, and sure enough, man, they are annihilating Wang Chu and his army. And they're just working masterfully as they're having to carry these weapons through the jungle. And Tony Stark's kind of doing his like, why do I feel like we're not going to get equal treatment for whichever biblical character he's going to somehow tie this to as far as depth of detail um, accuracy and things like that. Just, just saying. Bad boy walk away from the explosion, you know. It's like going on and he's doing, you know, like this sort of deal, you know. Like they always, like Mark Wahlberg does in like every single movie he's in. So he's, he's doing like the slow, and as he's doing the slow walk away, he sets off, he walks over a trip line and sets off what's an essentially, essentially an IED. And the IED explodes, and when it explodes, it sends shrapnel everywhere, and specifically, one piece of shrapnel ends up buried in his chest, heading towards his heart. The communists come up on him, the enemies come up on, onto Tony Stark after the explosion goes off, and they see him, and they recognize because he is not in military uniform, he must be some special official. And, and as they, you know, they, they take him prisoner, and they realize, man, he's injured badly. And the doctor for Wong Chu says, like, we can't operate on him. We, we cannot, the shrapnel's too close to his heart. If we operate on him, we're going to kill him. He's going to be dead in a week because the shrapnel's still heading towards his heart. 
So Tony Stark, you know, comes awake, and he's not, you know, aware of any of this other than, you know, he's injured. And Wong Chu says, here's the deal, you know, the enemy. Here's the deal. You're our prisoner. We've captured you. We know that you're a weapons manufacturer. You're going to be dead in a week because you've got shrapnel in your heart. If you don't develop the weapon that you developed for the U.S. military, then we're not going to operate on you and you're going to die anyway. Now, Tony Stark's a bright man, so he's able to, to, to quickly deduce that this, this, this isn't true. You know, like they must not be able to operate on me because if, if they were able to operate on me and save my life, Wang Chu would save me anyway because I'm a much more valuable asset alive than I am dead. And, and so he comes to this realization, well, here's, like, if, if, I, if I'm going to die, if, if I'm going to die while being a prisoner, if I've only got a week to live, I'm not going to spend that last week helping you develop this weapon so the U.S. military can defeat you. I, I, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And, and so, but, you know, he, he goes along with it. So, you know, Wang Chu, leave him alone. And what they, what they do is they end up setting up Tony Stark and just a reminder, this is supposedly a sermon in a laboratory with a bunch of scrap metal, like everything that he needs to you know, make these transistors. But secretly, what Tony Stark is doing is he realizes if I take this transistor, if I take the transistor I've created and, and I make some kind uh, of chest piece and, and I attach a magnet to it and, and the magnet, you know, to the transistor, I can design some way to keep the shrapnel out of my heart and I can live. Now, Wang Chu, the, the, you know, the, the enemy, he realizes this isn't going to be something Tony Stark's able to do by himself. So he introduces another character into the comic book, a guy named Professor Yin or Professor Yinsen. Professor Yinsen was a man that Tony Stark had studied while at MIT. He was one of the leading guys in physics in the world, and everybody thought that he was dead. But really what had happened was Wang Chu had captured him, and he'd been working as his prisoner you know, for years. So you bring in Professor Yinsen, and together, Professor Yinsen and Tony Stark set out to work on this chest piece that can keep Tony Stark alive, while Wang Chu thinks that they're creating that they're creating the weapon for him so that they can use against the U.S. military. Uh, they, they get towards the end of the week, and Wang Chu's on his way back. Now, I don't know what kind of prison they've got set up, you know, with Wang Chu, but uh, apparently they have, like, a warning light, because Tony Stark and Professor Yinsen are in doing, you know, the thing that they're not supposed to be doing, working against Wang Chu, and Wang Chu's on the way, and in the comic book it shows, like, an alarm going off in the laboratory, like, Hey, the guards are coming to check up on you. Like, that would be a good prison to be in, my guess would be. Is, you know, one that lets you know when the guards are coming to check up on you. So, but they realize, oh, no, they're coming. They're going to see that we're, you know, we're, we're not doing the thing that we're supposed to be doing. Uh, the, the chest piece is ready. Like, the, the, the body armor is ready, but it's not charged. And so it's not going to do any good. Professor Yinsen realizes, man, this whole thing is going to be in vain if I don't buy Stark some time, if I don't buy Tony Stark some time. So Tony Stark hops in the suit, and the suit's charging up so that it gets power. And Professor Yinsen goes, and he hides by the, behind the door. And, and when Wang Chu comes in, Professor Yinsen, who's this old guy, makes this run for it. And Tony Stark's left there laying on the table waiting for the suit to build enough charge. And as Yinsen's running down the hall, he hears the guys chasing him. They're shooting at him. And eventually, they hear him catch Professor Yinsen. The bad guys catch Professor Yinsen. And Tony Stark overhears them kill him. 
Now, in that moment, a shift happens in Tony Stark's perspective. The suit ends up being able to to build up enough charge uh, in the transistors, and Tony Stark is able to hide and then eventually escape. And Professor Yinsen's death serves as like a transition point in Tony Stark's life. No longer is he like this arrogant, prideful guy. Also, the the wound, the shrapnel, ends up being kind of the the, the thing that shifts Tony Stark's character out. Again, a reminder, this is supposedly a sermon being preached at a Christian church. He's not preaching God's word, at least not yet. I wonder what the connection is between Tony Stark and whoever it is we're going to be reading about. Out of arrogance and pride and into one where he vows to avenge Professor Yensen's death, that Professor Yensen's death would not be in vain. Now, when Tony Stark first, like, escapes, he has this moment after he's hiding, waiting to, to escape, where he has inwardly, he thinks to himself about what has happened to him over the last week. And in the original comic book, it has this quote. It says, my brain still thinks. It says, my heart still beats. But... In order to remain alive, I must spend the rest of my life in this iron prison. So he, he escapes and he, he, he buys himself some time before he you know, fully escapes his captors. And he has this moment where he inwardly thinks to himself about what's going on. And he has a realization. He has a realization of, about what has happened. And he originally, like he realizes like, man... In order for me to be able to survive the rest of my life, like, I'm stuck inside this thing. This, he calls it an iron prison. You know, like, originally, like, this isn't a good thing. This isn't an opportunity for Tony Stark. You know, Iron Man isn't, isn't born right away. And see, here's the thing. Like, I have trouble relating to him, like, at this point in time in the, in, in the comic book. I have a hard time relating you know, calling something that allows you to fly with jets an iron prison, you know, to be able to go like this, like Buzz Lightyear and a missile comes out of your arm. Like that doesn't, like that, you almost seem like, feel like that's the epitome of freedom, you know, at that point in time. But I, I hardly can think of that like a prison. But see, that's not where, that's not where Iron Man starts. You know, originally this isn't an opportunity for Tony Stark. Originally... This is a prison. Now, see, here's the thing. Here's what I love about Iron Man. What, what I love about Tony Stark and, and, and the, the invincible Iron Man is that he's got no supernatural powers, you know. He, he, he wasn't bitten by a radioactive spider. Uh, he, he's, he's not from another planet. He doesn't have superhuman strength. He's, he's not a, a demigod. You know, which, which as a you know, former contractor, I'm partial to a guy who can swing a hammer well, especially a sweet hammer like that. And he's, he's not exposed to, to, to gamma rays. Like there's nothing supernatural that's going on with Tony Stark. And, th- and that's not a shot at the other superheroes. They all have something that they have to overcome. But Iron Man turns, make, makes a turn out of a catastrophe. He turns a catastrophe into an opportunity, and it's no supernatural help. He's just a dude with a brilliant mind and essentially a, a broken heart. There's another, there's another writer 
who, you know, helps Stan Lee with a lot of his comics. His, his name is Jerry Conway. And then in, in, in an interview about Iron Man, uh, Jerry Conway said this about the character. He said, you, you have this character who, on the outside, he's invulnerable. I, I mean, he just can't be touched. But inside, he's a wounded figure. Stan Lee made it a very much an in-your-face wound, you know? His heart was broken, literally broken. But there's a metaphor going on there, and that's, I think, what made the character interesting. You see, Tony Stark has something bad happening. The the shrapnel hits his heart, it buries itself in his chest, and it changes Tony Stark's perspective. 16 minutes, 30 seconds into this sermon no mention of Jesus yet. And God's word has yet to make an appearance. I don't know how Curtis Teal's going to land on his feet. No longer is he this invincible man who can't be touched. No longer uh, is he a guy who can get away with anything. He now has a wound, and he's got to deal with this wound. I mean, he's, he's got a week. The shrapnel is headed towards his heart, and if he doesn't deal with it, it's going to literally tear his heart apart. He's got a wound, and he's got to deal with it. He can either do nothing, or he can try. And so if if Tony Stark doesn't make sure to escape his captors, then Professor Jensen would be completely a loss. It would be totally in vain if Tony Stark would just lie there. But instead... He uses what would be a bad situation as a catalyst to become a superhero. And it's cool. Marvel offers the the ability to like download digitally for like a buck, which is pretty sweet. Their original comic books. And as you read the next couple stories about Tony Stark, as he kind of develops into this character, the invincible Iron Man, it's cool to watch his character unfold because eventually, not right away, But eventually, Stark realizes that it's actually the shrapnel in his heart that enables him to become Iron Man. You see, the shrapnel's not what gives him the ability, but Tony Stark has to deal with, and how he responds to the shrapnel is what turns him into Iron Man, is ultimately the event that pushes him to invent the suit. You see, it's the event that pushes him to become a superhero and the desire to avenge and help a friend that allowed him to see this opportunity. And I like Iron Man because, man, I can get behind that. I can get behind a character that's got to fight back against wounds in his heart. You see, maybe not literally, but figuratively, I would be willing to say that I've got shrapnel in my heart. And that's not, an always, uh, that's not always an easy thing for, you know, us dudes to say. And, uh, but I think the reality is... So th- this is a tender moment. He has shrapnel in his heart. Job of a pastor is to preach the word. Christianity thrived for 2,000 years before there were comic books to assist the gospel and make it relevant. In fact, you know, it makes you wonder. I mean, if you were in seminary, rather than having your Greek New Testament open, you had your comic book open. Were you really truly studying for the ministry? Is that we've all got stories. We've all got things from our past, pain from our past, things that I would say 
are shrapnel in our hearts. Some, some of us huge shrapnel, some of us a bunch of small things that have added up over time. And you see, and we do all kinds of things to try and, and deal with this shrapnel, you know. We think, man, if I could just get revenge, if I could just tip the scales back a little bit in my favor, make this thing even, like then, then I wouldn't have to worry about this, this shrapnel in my heart. You know, maybe we, we, we try and run away from it. Like, man, if I could just disappear, if I could just go somewhere where nobody knows anything about me, this thing will just, and I'll, I, I can stop worrying about it. The, the, the shrapnel, you know, will just kind of fade out on its own. Maybe try and ignore it, man. If I just pretend like it's not there, the pain, will, it'll leave me alone. It'll, it'll go away. But what we find, we find out the more we try to do that, the harder we try to get revenge, the harder we try to ignore that it's there, it almost seems like the more that that shrapnel ends up getting accented. You know? You almost end up feeling that shrapnel more. Now, there are all kinds of of, of cool stories that we can unpack from the Bible, but today I specifically want to unpack a guy from the book of Genesis, the very beginning of our Bible, a guy named Joseph. You want to talk about a dude that's got some shrapnel in his heart. Like, like this is it. His story, his story spans from chapter 37 of the book. So Joseph, who is typologically one of the greatest parallels to the story of Jesus, you're just going to jump over his story into chapter 50 and say he's a dude with shrapnel in his heart. Because, you know, Joseph, he's just like Iron Man. Yeah, right. Book of Genesis all the way to the very end. And I'm just going to cover it from like a high point. I just kind of want to tell you a little bit about his story. But honestly, some good application that comes out of today is, man, go home with your Bibles and, and read just a chapter a night, you know, five verses a night, something. Start with Genesis 37 and just read through Joseph's story. And it's amazing to see this guy's character. You had plenty of time to tell us about Tony Stark. You spent 20 minutes giving us the entire backstory of Tony Stark. Why couldn't you start at Genesis 37 and, you know, preach about Joseph? And then when you run out of time, just pick up the story next week unfold in the way like some of the things are kind of his fault and then other things like clearly like he was trying to do the right thing and he totally got burned and just look at all the shrapnel that ends up in joseph's heart now joseph's story goes something like this it it runs from page 31 through 44 in the house bibles joseph is about the 11th of 12 sons okay he's he's more of one of the the younger brothers he's got 10 older brothers and joseph number 11 is very clearly daddy's favorite daddy gives him all kinds of special gifts and special attention and the first 10 children really you know grow to hate joseph because of that joseph also doesn't help himself he's kind of a tattletale Uh, that's a note for all of you tattletales in here nobody likes a tattletale so yes snitches yeah Uh, um uh, so anyway, so what happened? Sorry, I got distracted with that. <laughs> I wanted to finish that out, but that's not appropriate in church. Uh, so, so Joseph, his older brothers are all shepherds and his dad says, Hey, I want you to go check on your older brothers." So Joseph goes to check. And while he's a long way off, Joseph's older brother seemed like, man, I'm so sick of this fool. 
I'm so sick and tired of him always, you know, daddy playing favorites, always daddy giving him special gifts. Yeah, he is really not doing a good job of giving us the backstory on Joseph. I mean, you'd think he, you know, since Joseph is in the Bible, that we'd get a more detailed understanding of what Joseph is about so that, you know, no one could accuse him of, like, favoring Tony Stark over Joseph. But apparently he way more interested in, in conveying the intricacies of the story backstory of Tony Stark than he is about Joseph. You know what we should do? We should beat him and we should kill him. Like, wow, that doesn't really sound like that. Luckily, somebody was in the group and was able to talk some sense into him because they just beat him and sell him into slavery. That's a little better. Um, so Joseph comes, they beat him, they throw him in a pit, they sell him to, to slavery. Now, Daddy is going to want to know where his favorite son is. So what they do is they strip him of his coat, they dip it in animal blood, and they take it to Dad and say, hey, look, Dad, we found this on the way home. Uh, isn't this Joseph? And Dad's like, yeah, an animal must have killed him. You know, like, how horrible is that to say to your father, you know? Uh, so Joseph, anyways, ends up being sold into slavery. He goes to Egypt. He's sold to a man named Potiphar where he serves as a slave to um, uh, uh, an Egyptian, like, general named Potiphar. Now, Joseph's a good worker. He's an honest man. He works really hard. Uh, and he kind of he works his way up through the ranks pretty quickly. And it gets to the point where he's kind of in charge of Potiphar's household. Uh, but Joseph must have been a looker. Uh, he must have looked like me, you know. Uh, that's right, baby. <laughs> that, that's my wife. She's over there. Uh, I wasn't pointing at you, Eric. Um, so Potiphar's wife comes on to Joseph. She comes on to him like, hey, baby, why don't you, you know, like, I don't, I don't know. She, she comes on to him and Joseph's like, no, 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 no. I'm like, I'm not sleeping with you. And she's, you know, a couple of times. Finally, Joseph resists her to the point where he runs off. And when he runs, she takes his coat off of him. Joseph's got this thing with coats. He needs to stop wearing coats. She takes the coat off and she starts, rape, rape, rape. The guards rush in. And who are you going to believe, a slave boy or the man of the household's wife? And so they believe the wife and they, they take Joseph and they throw him in jail and he spends years in jail being falsely accused of rape. He spends time, but Joseph's a good worker. He works his way up through the ranks and he, I don't know how this works, you know, like in their prison system, but he works his way up in the ranks where he's like the guy that takes attendance. And, 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 and he, you know, comes like the most powerful prisoner in the prison. And two guys who work for Pharaoh end up coming to jail. And Joseph's got a particular set of skills. I'm not going to tell you what they are because I want you to read it. He's like Liam Neeson. He's got a particular set of skills. You want them to read it, but the job of a pastor is to preach the word. So, I mean, are you too busy? And these two guys come to him, and he's able to make use of his particular set of skills. and said, here's the deal. In a couple days, you guys are going to be released, and you're going to come back in front of Pharaoh. When you come back in front of Pharaoh... Will you please remember me? Because, like, I'm pretty sure I've been forgotten down here for a crime that I didn't commit. And so, sure enough, a couple of days, the guy gets freed. He ends up in front of Pharaoh and totally forgets about Joseph. I mean, like, the shrapnel's starting to add up in Joseph's heart, you know? So the guy ends up, and two years later, two years later, they end up needing Joseph's particular set of skills. And the guy remembers, hey, there's this guy in prison named Joseph. And they pull him up in front of Pharaoh. And because of Joseph and God working through Joseph, Egypt is able to prepare for a famine 
that's getting ready to hit that whole known world at that time. And they're able to prep for seven years for a famine that's going to last seven years. And Egypt becomes the only place in the whole known world at the time that has food and is able to survive. And guess what happens? Joseph's brothers end up running out of food and have to go ask you-know-who for food. Now, you want to talk about an opportunity for revenge, right? Joseph's own brothers end up standing in front of him, and they don't realize that they're talking to the very boy that they sold into slavery years ago. Now, I'm sure during all that time that Joseph had to spend in prison, he's had to work through through some of the stuff that his brothers have done to him. You know, he's got some serious shrapnel in his heart that he's got to deal with. And he ends up standing in front of his brothers, and eventually he comes to a place where he's able to... Yeah, he's just like Tony Stark. ...able to stand in front of him and say this to him. Their brothers are... uh, His brothers, Joseph's brothers, are afraid that Joseph's going to kill him. You know, exact revenge on him. But he comes to this, Genesis chapter 50, 50, verses 19 and 20, page 44, if you're in the house Bible, says this. But Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. I mean, now that's a tough thing for a man in that oper- like position to be able to say. There's a couple things that I love about what Joseph says there. Number one, he calls it what it is. He doesn't say to his brothers, oh, hey, like, remember that like years ago you guys beat me and sold me into slavery? Wasn't that fun? No, I mean, he's like, it's evil. I mean, he, and he calls it evil. Hey, what you guys did to me, that wasn't right. And I mean, and it, and it stunk having to go through all of that. But he said, like, you guys intended evil. But look how God's used it for good. And, and that's like the second part I love is, is Joseph was able to, to grapple, was able to wrestle with the shrapnel in his heart and come to a place where he could say, but look how God has used this for good. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. See, Joseph has shrapnel. You see, and I think like Joseph... I think we've got shrapnel, something that's, you know, embedded itself and it's close to our heart and it stings. And in some ways, we're not really sure how we operate with it. Maybe it's a father or a mother who, you know, was never there. Maybe it was that that touch. So let me see if I got this straight. Uh, Tony Stark is a parable about Joseph. Joseph is a parable about you. Oh, man, this is painful. That touch that happened that, that wasn't supposed to happen because you were in a safe place and that was supposed to be somebody that you could trust. The gossiping behind your back from the family or friends that you thought that you thought you had, the divorce that you just didn't see coming. The early death of a child that still to this day just doesn't make sense. Maybe it's something that that you've struggled with specifically. And it's, it has brought pain to your own life and, and to, to, to the lives of other people that are in your life. Maybe it's an addiction like alcohol or, or, or pornography or, or drugs. Something that you just... Yeah, those would be quality. You know, you know, they are sins. That's what they are. You know, those are, should be categorized as sins. just can't shake. Maybe it's an insecurity. Maybe the shrapnel is an insecurity. I'm not good enough. You know, body image. Why am I still single? 
I don't have a cool story like that guy or girl. Can I be a good dad when I didn't have one? Why can't we have children? See, the reality is every single one of these things are extremely painful. Yeah, and they can put, you know, shrapnel in your heart. But you can be just like a superhero because, you know, Joseph had a superpower too. And, and so you just got to discover you. See, is that how that works? You got to discover your superpower? The shrapnel. And I think when we're brutally honest with ourselves, whatever your shrapnel is, I think it's probably buried a little bit closer to our hearts than we would like to admit. Some of us, probably through tears, have shared with someone about how we kind of feel like the shrapnel's already hit our hearts. And because of the shrapnel, we don't feel like we have anything left to offer. How how can I be good? God, God says he loves me. Why in the world would God love me with whatever this thing is? You see... With Iron Man, the shrapnel in his heart was going to be the thing that killed him. Like, it it was the shrapnel. The shrapnel was going to be the thing that killed him. But instead, he found a way to use it to his advantage. See, just like Iron Man, like, the shrapnel in our heart doesn't have to be the thing that kills you. It can actually be the thing that turns us into Iron Man. See, when it comes down to... (laughs) See, the shrapnel in your heart can turn you into Iron Man. Words I never thought I would hear anybody claiming to be a pastor would say during a sermon that's supposed to be about the Bible. And no, he didn't even come close to doing equal time for Joseph as he did regarding Tony Stark. Tony Stark got 20 full minutes. Joseph, seven, maybe eight. Yeah. To it. Tony wasn't able to do this on his own. Yeah, so let, let us draw strength in our Christian walk from Tony Stark. He had to find a way to, to deal with the shrapnel, and he had to find a way to get out of his situation in the beginning. And how did he do it? Did, how did God help him do that? He needed Professor Jensen in order to, to buy him some time so that he could build up enough energy to use the suit. And later, he ends up needing pepper pots. Yeah. Later in the comic book story, he still can't do it on his own, regardless of how smart he is, no matter how good of a fighter he is. He, he needs Pepper Potts behind the scenes that knows all the ins and outs of Iron Man. And so I, I think the main challenge that comes out of this, this parable as we, we look at Iron Man is you know, we, need to, we need to start getting real with each other. Yeah, you know? yeah that, that's, you know, that's the thing, yeah. That's what Jesus would have you do is just just get real with each other. Yeah. The Apostle Paul wrote about that all the time, man. Just get real is what Paul said. It's in Ninth Corinthians. Yeah. It, it didn't make it into the Bible, but he said it all the time. You know, maybe it's, it's in your Mo group. We need to start giving some real answers of what's going on, like the shrapnel, the pain that's buried in our hearts. So your small groups are called Mo groups because you go because you're Momentum Church, and you're going to engage in group therapy without a licensed group therapist. Got it? Yeah. I'm not necessarily saying that you've got to trust everybody in your Mo group, but I think a good challenge that comes out of this week is you need to find someone that you connect with in your Mo group that you can begin to trust with the shrapnel that's in your heart. Yeah, just 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 get that shrapnel out to somebody in your Mo group. Yeah. 
Because here's the thing. I think when you start sharing what your shrapnel is, we like to keep our shrapnel personal. Like, I don't, like, I don't want you to know what I struggle with. You don't want me to know what you struggle with. But when we do that, when we isolate ourselves, we just give the shrapnel more time to travel to us where it's going to cause more damage. Right, and you'll never be able to get into your, you know, Iron Man suit and become a superhero if you don't, you know, get real and share what's the shrapnel is in your heart with people in your Mo group, right? Yeah, this, this is guaranteed to help you bear the fruit of the Spirit in your life, I'm sure. And so there's this verse, Paul, Apostle Paul, a guy who, who ends up writing most of our New Testament, a, a Christian, he writes uh, a bunch of letters to different churches. And he writes two letters specifically to a church in Corinth. And in the second letter to him, he pens this verse. You, just, just a single verse. We're going to get one sentence from the Apostle Paul. Okay. Or he like feathers this verse. Maybe that's the... A... Says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. It says, What a wonderful God we have. He is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the source of every mercy. Yeah, yeah, there we go. First mention of Jesus Christ. And we even get, you know, the Apostle Paul talking about Christ's mercy. Can you develop that point, please? And the one who so wonderfully comforts and strengthens us in our hardships and our trials. And why does he do this? So that when others are troubled, needing our sympathy and our encouragement, we can pass on to them the same help and comfort that God has given us. You see, we're supposed to help each other with each other's shrapnel. Okay, yeah. Um, Can you develop the whole mercy thing? Because here you're talking about people who have shrapnel in their life, and some of the sources of that shrapnel is their sin or the sins of others, which means the forgiveness of sins is going to be, like, really important. Uh, People being forgiven for their sins by the shed blood of Christ, which he, you know, because he bore their sins on the cross, and then they, in turn, because they have been forgiven, forgiving those who have wounded them and sinned against them. I think that's going to be a really important thing here. And since Joseph really, his story points us to Jesus... I think you might want to really flesh that out. Now, years ago, I was working as a, a preaching intern here at Momentum, Momentum Christian Church. And I was, I was engaged to, to be married to, to my wife, uh, who you know I, I love very dearly. And in Mo Group, Dan, our lead minister, shared with us his struggles with pornography and lust. And how his, his stepdad exposed him at way too early of an age. And he, he, he landed in a place where he felt like, man, I'm addicted to this. And- okay, so we're talking about a sin. That's what that is. It's a sexual sin. And so he confessed his sin to the people in the Mo group. Please tell me that your response to him had something to do with Jesus bleeding and dying for those sins, and that you told him to repent and to be forgiven, and you assured him of Christ's mercy and grace for sinners. Yeah, let's let's hope that that's what the solution was. We continue. And, and, and it's hurting my relationships, and it's eventually it's hurting my marriage. And the only way that I could find out, like I could get out of that was to talk with my wife and to talk with some friends who really held me accountable. 
And because of that story that Dan shared that night in Mo Group, it led to me. Yeah, listen, accountability, I don't have a problem with that. That's an important thing. But going from confessing sins to accountability and skipping over the forgiveness of sins and being absolved, that's a crime in the church. Because Jesus bled and died for all of those sins. How can you skip that? talking with him and it eventually led to me talking to two or three guys man that i'm still extremely close to man and they kicked my butt and that was an uncomfortable conversation about talking with with my lusting and my dealing with pornography and it ended up as a a a catalyst which led to you were talking about uncomfortable conversations talking with my then fiance about that struggle but see here's the deal because of Dan sharing that story, because of Dan, like our lead minister, talking about that and sharing that with me and eventually challenging me and coaching me through that situation, I did talk with my fiance, and she's now my wife, and I feel, I know, well, I know, I hope she says the same thing, that our marriage is stronger today because of that. Yeah, um, but see, the thing is, what you've described at this point is no different than what you would get at, like, you know, Pornography Aholics Anonymous. Is there such a group? Uh, um, you, you don't need Jesus for this because Jesus bled and died for sinners. I mean, a Buddhist could, you know, find a group of other Buddhists and say, hey, I'm struggling with pornography. Can you hold me accountable? And they'd say, sure, we'll hold you accountable. And then the guy believes that it's made his life better. You, you know, but see, Christianity, the solution to our problem of sin is a crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ who literally, uh, Isaiah says that the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The solution to our sin is not accountability partners, but the one who bled and died in our place and suffered the penalty for our sins. Oy. The shrapnel that was in someone's heart ended up being able to be used for ministry to help rescue many others. You know, and so I think of another guy in our Mo group. His name is Ron. And Ron's been coming to the new campus since we launched back in September. What exactly does this have to do with Joseph again? September. And he was just able to celebrate. He'll tell you, like, I'm an alcoholic. And I've been 15 years sober and when someone shows up to Mo Group and they start st- talking about struggling with alcoholism, like Ron's all over it. Like, do you, have a, do you have a sponsor? Do you have a sponsor? I'll be your sponsor. I'll be your sponsor. Because Ron understands the importance of being able to share your shrapnel and being able to use your story for ministry. You see, use your story for ministry? What about telling the story of Jesus? Because that's the gospel. Whatever life transformation I've experienced as a, as a result of the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that's not the gospel. That's the result of the gospel, but it's not the gospel. The most important story to tell is not my story. The most important story to tell is the story of Jesus and what he's done for us. See, I think of another guy in our Mo group who talks painfully about growing up without a dad. About how dad promised to always be at the baseball games and dad never showed up at the games, you know. Oh, yeah, I'll be there at the school. And then he wasn't there. You know, and so it's trying to figure out, like, man, I don't know how to be a good father to, to my kid. 
And, and seeing the other dads in the group rally to him, and like, we're all trying to figure this out together, you know, because I sure as heck don't know what I'm doing. And it's so cool to see, like, everybody figuring out together and using their shrapnel for ministry. The shrapnel is, is what's turning Brian, the guy that's wanting to be a good dad, into Iron Man as he's beginning to use that as his story to, to, to relate to others. So, so now Christian sanctification is becoming like Iron Man. Wow. Who have that same shrapnel from growing up. You see, and once healing starts to take place, it's then that we can begin to use our shrapnel to turn us into Iron Man. There's one more verse that I want to share with you this morning. Paul. Yeah, I'd like to be more like Jesus and nothing like Iron Man. Paul, the same guy, you know. So we're going to get one more verse from the Apostle Paul out of context, too. Notice this is all law, not gospel. There's no gospel in this sermon at all. We just talked about, he writes a letter to, to Rome. And about midway through the letter, he writes this verse, Romans 8, verse 28. And it's in the middle of talking about suffering and, and how we, we work. Yeah, don't you want to read like Romans 8, like starting at verse 1, uh, which says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, I mean, that would be a good verse for you to throw in right here in this point in the sermon because, you know, there's a bunch of people out there who are just being nailed to the wall by God's law and being convicted of their sin, and your solution is just, you know, get real about your your shrapnel with your Mo group so that you can have accountability. As if somehow by me being accountable and getting better at this, even if, you know, say you got somebody confessing their their stuff, saying, oh, you know, I'm having an affair with somebody, right? So even if that guy confessed the fact that he was having an affair and he stopped having the affair and uh, and straightened out his life, he still does not have a right relationship with God. And living a chaste life from that day forward still will not earn him salvation. You know what I'm saying? work through and how we deal with and, and how we move forward through suffering. And he writes this verse, he says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Now see what's really cool. About yeah. But see, the thing is when you're sinning, that's kind of like objective evidence that you don't love God with your whole heart. So how do you reconcile that? I mean, just try harder to love God so that everything will work out right. This is a works-based religion that you're talking about at this point. This doesn't even remotely reflect biblical Christianity. About that verse, it doesn't like God doesn't cause it, but He promises us that as we continue to pursue Him, He'll be able to work it for good. I mean, and that's 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 tough to deal with, but that's why we need each other, and that's why like the encouragement that we pull from each other. It's so important because it helps us take that shrapnel, the very thing that was going to kill us, the very thing that was causing us so much pain and enables us to turn into Iron Man. No, it, it doesn't because you're describing sin. That just enables us to go to hell. That's what our sin enables us to do. doesn't enable us to become Iron Man. Sin enables us to go to hell. So that we can save many others. 
They intended it for evil, but God was able to use it for good. Once we feel that pain and we find a way to deal with that pain, it's then that we can begin to use that shrapnel to actually become part of our strength. There's an art form that I've been introduced to recently. It's called kintsuji. I tried to make sure to sound that right so you can look it up later. And it's a, it's a pretty cool art form. Kintsuji, uh-huh. Kintsuji originated around the 15th century. And uh, it's said, this is kind of like an old wives' tale, I guess, but it's said to have originated because a Japanese commander broke his favorite tea bowl. Must have been a big deal that he broke his favorite tea bowl because he wanted to use his favorite tea bowl. So he, he gathered up all the pieces that broke and he, he, he shipped it back to, to China. He sent it back to China for the original artist to fix. Now, in the 15th century, the way that they would fix broken pottery, I don't know how this would work, but it, it was, they fix it with metal staples. That doesn't, you know, make a whole lot of sense. Needless to say, the guy fixes it with the metal staples and he sends the tea bowl back. The Japanese commander gets it and he's, you know, he's disappointed with the the bowl that he gets back because he looks at it and like the staples just make the bowl look worse. And to, to, to make things worse yet, he still can't use the tea bowl. He pours the water in it and the water just runs out because it's cracked. So what he does is he decides he still wants to use his favorite tea bowl. He must really love this thing. He, he commissions a Japanese artist to figure something else out. Because he wants to be able to use his favorite tea bowl. So the Japanese artist goes back and he's, he's trying to figure this out. How he can put this pot back together. How he, can, how he can get this tea bowl fixed. And he realizes there's nothing he can do to get rid of the cracks. Like, like he realizes like this bowl is broken. There's nothing that I can do to hide the cracks. Even if I make the lacquer clear, you still see the cracks. And so what he decides to do is he takes a gold bar and he grinds it up. And he mixes the gold bar in with the lacquer. And he uses the lacquer to piece back the tea bowl. And it becomes this art form known as kintsuji. And the idea behind the art form is that the bowl becomes more valuable because it's broken. The idea is that the bowl becomes more valuable because, and more beautiful because it has been broken. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I am familiar with Kintsuji, unfortunately. Um, it's, it's a fascinating oriental um, art form, if you would. In fact, you can even purchase Kintsuji repair kits if you would like to you know, practice, practice this on your favorite ceramic piece that has been broken. But uh, th- why can we not have the biblical solution of Christ crucified for our sins, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins, and then bearing fruit in keeping with that repentance. Yeah, because he was broken for us so that we can be made whole. You know what I mean? You see, this, this, this bowl back here uh, is now worth over $2,000. So you can go buy it off of Etsy if you'd really like. And it's just this little tiny bowl just this little tiny bowl, but it's more valuable, it's more beautiful because it's been broken. Now, here's the deal. When you let God handle your shrapnel, the shrapnel that's in your heart. I th- and how do I let God handle it? I think we end up like these bowls. 
And we end up more beautiful because we've been broken. You know, the the pain sucks. And I know that there's pain in our stories, that there's shrapnel. You do realize Jesus was literally broken, crushed for our sins, right? In our heart. But we we try so many different ways to to, to get rid of the pain and, and whatever it is that makes up our story. And we realize that those cracks aren't going anywhere. The shrapnel is still in our hearts. But when we stay connected to God and through him and, and through each other's help and an encouragement through their stories, the healing can happen. And we realize that by following him, the shrapnel in our heart can actually be the thing that turns us into Iron Man. Wow. This is like Christless, crossless, I don't know what this is. And allows us to rescue many others. Yeah, you can become just like Iron Man and rescue people. Yeah. I mean, find a way to share your story this week. How about instead share the story of Christ and his bitter sufferings and death on the cross for our sins? Go home, write it out. Yeah, it's already written. It, you can find it in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And be ready to, to share, you know, why you're more beautiful, why you're more powerful because you've been broken. Why I'm more powerful. <sighs> God demonstrates his love for this in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. We see we were powerless. That's when Jesus dies for us. Let's pray. God. Ugh, done. Done. That was abysmal. Absolutely abysmal. If that's any kind of a preview of what's coming this summer in the Seeker Driven Movement. Wow. It's going to be a long road to hoe during the summer. Christless, crossless, legalistic, it's all law, group therapy without absolution. Yeah, <laughs> kind of the tacit understanding that, hey, you do these things and you'll, you know, you'll get on God's good side and you'll stay in his good graces. And that's not the gospel at all. What would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you. And the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ is vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.